Welcome to another episode of Nebraska Gems. With our in-depth interviews, we reveal the qualities that make the people that come from the good life who they are. In the stories you're about to hear, you'll get an understanding of why there is no place like Nebraska. And now, here's Mike Melby. On today's episode, I'll be chatting with the man who held the title of the director of the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission for 24 years. He is a Lifetime Achievement Award winner from the Nebraska Wildlife Federation. He was instrumental in developing Eugene T. Mahoney State Park near Ashland. He dedicated the Calamus Reservoir Fish Hatchery, spearheaded the development of Smith Falls State Park on the Niobrara, and he helped create over a dozen outdoor education programs. He served as president of three different national and regional fish and wildlife agencies. Bottom line, he has done more for wildlife, water, and natural resource conservation and benefited those who hunt and fish more than anybody else. My guest today is Red Cloud native Rex Amack. Rex, welcome to Nebraska Gems. Thank you, Mike. What was your life like growing up in Red Cloud? Actually, it was wonderful. Um, I grew up on a farm there cow-calf operation, and, and uh, right on the Republican River. Uh, we had uh, a lot of river frontage, and so fishing and, and, and appreciation for the outdoors came natural to us. And I always thought it was funny because a lot of people look down their nose some rural life if you're a city boy, girl, and yet that's just a really bad uh, idea because they don't. They, uh, well, I had, from about the time I was in seventh grade, people from all of our classes wanted to come out to the farm, wanted to see the river, wanted to go swimming. And uh, so I, it was just a great childhood. So growing up in the Republican River Valley, you were in the perfect spot to learn about the outdoors. Did your parents help push you to learn or just simply teach you about conservation, about hunting, about fishing, wildlife, and how important all of that is. Yes, very much so. Particularly my father, he uh, made me a wooden gun out of a one-by-one, or not a one-by-one, but a one-by-six, carved out a wooden gun, painted the barrel orange. And I carried that gun pheasant hunting with him for about three years. It started, I think, when I was seven. And uh, if I was pointed that, he saw me point that gun somewhere, he'd say, Rex, nope, 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 nope. And, or if I put my finger in the finger guard, nope. So <laughs> I, uh, he gave me a 410, my first gun, and single shot. And yep. it was just so fun to just be with him and hunt and he would say a lot of times birds will hang at this time of day they'll be in this habitat or that habitat and so it was very enjoyable and and he was always very um and my mom too they they were very concerned always about water quality of the river and what's going to happen to the river and i heard a lot of um conversations in my kitchen sometimes pretty late at night with the uh, area farmers and landowners are talking about the river. So it's kind of interesting. You're six, seven, eight years old, 12 years old, whatever, growing up, and you're almost being groomed to become the director of the Game and Parks Commission. It's, yeah, I mean, little did your parents know that, that everything they were instilling in you was going to be able to allow you to 
be unbelievably successful at leading um, you know, conservation efforts for wildlife and, and natural resources in the state. Well, I appreciate that, Mike, and uh, I think it's very much true. Uh, they, my parents were um, always conservationists, and being on the farm, you, you have to be. I mean, we're the, they're the stewards of the, the country, all of our real estate, and they're very much true. So um, I, I always felt uh, privileged to have growing up, and I, I was the last of six kids to, to be home. I was the baby. And so it was interesting when people would talk about things that I, I heard my brothers and sisters talk about five or six years before. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've heard this conversation before. <laughs> so you were the youngest. How big of an influence were your brothers and sisters to you? Well, three of them were pretty influential. I had an older brother who was 17 years older than me. And so he had, he was in college when I was born. Um, and my sister, but you know, later as life went by, as I got, they, they traveled out to the farm for holidays and what have you. I got to know them very well. And, but my oldest, uh, my next to me above me was my sister Vivian. And she was the most influential because we spent the most time together. But then with my brother Ron, and he was next above her, and he was ornery. Uh, when I look back on it, I always say he was, he was management and I was labor. And he'd come up with these schemes like, we're gonna build these rabbit cages and we're gonna make thousands of dollars selling rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> we never sent one rabbit to market. Okay, so, so he was a little Andre and always had the ideas. So when you were in high school and when you became a teenager, et cetera, were you more quiet and reserved or were you more like him, a little bit more outgoing and let's go try some, some fun kind of goofy stuff? Well, I'd have to say it's the latter. I, um, I, I, I just, high school was very, very pleasurable for me because I'd lived on that farm all these years and I was got to, I got to know that, uh, Everybody recognized that I didn't have very many street smarts. <laughs> I mean, unless the street was growing corn, I didn't know much about it. When you were in high school, did you play sports? Yes. Okay. Red Cloud Warriors? Red Cloud Warriors. Mm -hmm. Football, basketball, track, all uh, of the above? I basically just played some football. Okay. Mm -hmm. Offense, defense, and what I position? And I, I was a center, so I did handle the ball every, every play. But um, that's about the end of it. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really cut out to be a championship <laughs> football player. <laughs> Fair enough. So after high school, you go to the University of Nebraska. You graduate in 1968 with a degree in communications. Were the plans to be a radio and TV star? Well, I, I didn't really have a set plan because I, I, when I went to the school, I was very fortunate to have a wonderful dean because I wanted to not just study marketing or advertising or um, TV or radio. I wanted to be skilled in all of them. And that was kind of unheard of because most people, they, they wanted to either be writers and newspaper guys or types or what, whatever they wanted to be. But I was open to about anything and I thought I'll have more opportunities with a more diverse education than I will a specialized vacation. 
So I got to, like, one part of our broadcasting class, we broadcast uh, Nebraska football games. And we did uh, TV productions at the um, TV area over there at the hall, and we just really enjoyed a lot of forms. We had marketing classes and advertising classes. So I just really enjoyed it. Now, before you actually graduate, I believe in 1967, you applied to be an intern with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. What was your day-to-day routine like when you first started with Game and Parks? I was in the Information and Education Division, and uh, they also at that point in time were handling tourism. So I did a lot of tourism work for the department and for the state, and and I did... uh, daily news releases when they were needed, announcements from the, to the press. And I was just, overall, I, I produced, and uh, for my boss at that point, was doing a, a long-time radio show, and I produced that show. And I was just kind of all through the Information and Education Division. As an intern, you don't really have a day-to-day responsibility to come and work and say, this is what you're going to do all day-to-day. You're going to do seven different things that day. And I loved that. I know you were instrumental in helping develop Outdoor Nebraska for NET, and and you also hosted the show. How did that come about? Well, that's that's one of the reasons that when I was hired there, uh, they wanted to, the department wanted to expand their uh, presence in the media. And television was, a, in my judgment, was the most accessible because we weren't going to become a, uh, right off the bat anyway, we weren't really going to become a, a program on an affiliated network, but we we could earn our spurs if we got in, we took, uh, produce a show for the um, Nebraska Educational Television. And there were wonderful people there that was very open to bringing the uh, outdoors to the uh, their viewers as an educational process. So it went just fine because we were about education and sometimes people don't like to have education. They want to have more entertainment. So they got their choice because learning about the outdoors is very entertaining. At one point you oversaw Nebraska Land Magazine and and numerous other game and parks publications as well. Plus you helped produce the commission's weekly radio program what did you enjoy the most from the media standpoint, television, radio, or print? Oh, golly. I, I don't think I could put my finger on any one of them because I was proud and buttons would pop right off my shirt once a month when we got the magazine done. I thought the photography, we, we, we really etched the photography way up, and um, our color printing became really superb. And on the TV side, we, we were given a slot right behind, that um, was the same hour, at the same time in the fall, or excuse me, the winter, for um, Backyard Farmer. And Backyard Farmer was the most popular show on ed- educational television. And so when it took a break, uh, then they put us in, and the timing was just perfect. Because they're more spring and summer and fall, and we're more fall, winter, and spring. So they all meshed together, and we had great viewership. Uh, we did call-in shows when people would 
just call in with all kinds of fun questions. You know, we say, we used to say, we're the, we're the um, bureaucratic barrier busters. You call us, you'll get an answer. And people just loved that. And we loved doing it. And we'd have specialists in big game and specialists in fisheries. They'd all be on hand for those call-in shows. And then they would bring the questions out to the moderator, who was myself and another gentleman, Jim McAllister. And um, it was a very popular show and very gratifying to do because people would call with really what was bothering them and get an answer. One of my favorite questions to ask people is when you were growing up, as you got older, as you progressed through your professional career, who was your mentor? Or, or quite honestly, who were your mentors? I have to answer that with what you just said, one of them. I, I, I looked at my um, career and my life as you start doing more and more when you get a little bit older. But um, I think it was probably a three, four-tier uh, process. In other words, my parents were my first mentors, and uh, my mother taught me the wonderful, wonderful gift of reading. Um, I kind of was stubborn about reading until she got me to understand what it was all literature was all about. And uh, my father, of course, was a great mentor in conservation and how to treat people, and, and he was just a wonderful gentleman, and not a wonderful father and a wonderful gentleman. And then when I, <clears throat> I went to high school, you, you, you run into some teachers that you have a, an effect on me, and I, I did that part. And then um, next step was uh, co uh, college. And I had won some wonderful instructors in college that, that, um, that they just really helped me understand what learning was about and why we're learning. And probably the one I remember the very most with great love and respect is William Clefcorn. Now, William Clefcorn was uh, a literature he, he taught uh, American Lit when I had a class from him. And um, he uh, was a, the Nebraska Poet Laureate for many, many, many years. When he was appointed, it would, the appointments were for life. Now they're for five-year terms that can be renewed. But, uh, so he was Poet Laureate of the state for a long time. But he was, he was still just always my favorite. When you took over as the director of Game and Parks, the Eugene T. Mahoney State Park was just beginning to be built. It was now up to you to ensure that this park became the end-all, be-all that it could possibly be. How important was it to you to get it right? Well, it was extremely important because that park, and I, I want to go back just a second here from the what I call my fourth phase of... Uh, of mentoring and being mentored. And that was uh, with, the, with the department. Um, I had been there, I, I joined the department in 67 as, a two, as an intern, and I, I never finished that intern. I um, came fall, and the director asked if I would like to work part-time during my last year at school. I said, well, sure, sure. I mean, so, and I, I, so I did that, and then, after graduation, I said, "Would you, what would you think about working here? I said, sure, I'll try that. So 
I never did end my internship. The books are still open on that, I guess. I was going to say, you're still an intern at the Game of Parks. <laughs> exactly. As of today. Right. I could go out and say, what do I do today? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But I'd, I'd been there, I became um, assistant chief of the, informa this, the Information Education Division, I think about 1973, I think. And in 75, I was promoted to uh, director of the Information Education Division. And that was when we started to, to do a lot of things because we had focus on that. We weren't focused on so many things. And the legislature had moved the Department of Tourism from the Game Commission to the Department of Economic Development. So we had a much clearer picture what we were doing uh, on conservation and, and development of facilities for hunting and fishing and camping and, and uh, all the natural resource-based programs that we've developed. I, uh, I, as I, I continued on then from, with the commission, and then starting in, I don't know, it seemed like after I was the chief of the Department of Information and Tourism, I thought, not tourism anymore, information education. I thought, well, I need to start to think now about doing something different. I don't probably want to do this for my whole life. So I started to think about that, and about that time in 1976, late in 1976, the director had um, left, and the commission hired a new director, and they hired Eugene T. Mahoney. Now, I had worked with Gene as a, as a senator when I was representing the commission on various um, legislative issues, and uh, he was very... Um, Hard to get to know. He was too busy. <laughs> he was too busy for me anyway. But I was pretty persistent, so eventually I got to know him. Well, he called me up when they appointed him, and I, he, said, he, he said, Brett, where is the game commission? <laughs> he said, so he doesn't know where to go to his new job. No, he's uh, the only one that he knew in the department was myself and a Game and Parks Commission Game Warden out in Arapahoe, Don Shepler. Those were the only two people he knew. <laughs> and so, anyway, I told him where the building was, and so he came out to the building, and and uh, he had, there was some discourse about um, his appointment as a politician, and et cetera, et cetera. And, but, you no, know, he, he had one, two, times he thought maybe he would give it up. I said, no, you can't give it up. I mean, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. It will force you to do great work for this state. And he did. So everything was going along there pretty fine. And then in 1980, uh, I was thinking about doing something different at that point for sure. Gene was uh, uh, an avid task taskmaker. <laughs> he, he kept everybody busy, <laughs> particularly as I, he, he really had a fondness for uh, information education because that's how we, he could communicate with the public. And so that was his, that was his venue. And of course, I was the top of the venue list for him. So 
There it goes. There it goes. So I was thinking about maybe doing something different. And, and uh, so in, in 1980, he, he called me one day about quarter to 12 and asked me if I wanted to, what I was doing for lunch. <laughs> I said, well, I, I think I'm going to find out here in just a minute. <laughs> he said, well, he said, come on up. I, want, I need to come up to my office. He was on third floor and I was on first floor. He said, I want to talk to you about something. So when I got up there, he and the two other assistant, the two assistant directors were having lunch and they had brought their lunches and um, I didn't have any lunch. He said, sit down right there. And so we did. <laughs> well, anyway, he, we had small talk and he said, well, I wanted everybody to know beforehand, this was on Wednesday afternoon at lunch. He said um, that on Friday at our meeting with the board, I'm going to name Rex as the assistant director for administration. And the other, the assistant directors are like, I mean, the jaws dropped and my jaw dropped. And so he, he hadn't mentioned a thing to me about that. So I, I thought maybe surprise is the best element of uh, <laughs> victory. I'm not sure. So, and this was in 1980? 1980. Really? So, um, so afterwards, and he said, all right, let's go back to work. You know, we'd already taken 10 minutes for lunch. <laughs> so long lunch. Yeah, long lunch break. So anyway, um, he, that afternoon then, he called me back up and came up and signed. He said, well, he said, I expect you were a little surprised. I said, a little surprised? <laughs> Yeah, I said, I was greatly surprised. And he said, well, here's the thing, Rex, I want to tell you. So you need to make a decision. You can either take this job or not. But he said, in my judgment, having worked with you now for four years closely to get these things done that we want done, he said, you will make a bigger impact as an administrator, and uh, I hope someday you have my job. And he said, you will make a bigger impact on this state and the resources that you love doing this job than you will ever make doing any other job in the country. So I, pretty heady stuff. And I kind of swallowed it with a, a grain of uh, humility, a lot of humility really. And so I accepted that job. And so I served as his assistant director for administration for eight years. And then he retired in 1988, and um, I was appointed director by the department. I would imagine the, the swell of pride and the, the ego was probably weighed down by the weight of what he had told you. Because he's, he's telling you he sees the potential in you. And, and I, I would think for if, if it was me, I would be going... It's up to me now to live up to the potential he says I have. And for someone that you respected as much as you did, uh, Gene, that, that had to be such a surreal feeling. You said it was a little bit of both. It was, you know, some pride and you're just, oh, wow, this is, this is amazing, but I've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> I'll, probably at the time I didn't realize how much, but the, it's so addictive. The more you do it, the more you like it. Okay, so let's go to 1988. You take over as the director of Nebraska Game and Parks, and at the time, 
everybody, just like today, could log onto their computer to the World Wide Web that, oh, didn't exist. Four or five years into your tenure, the internet is born, and you embraced it more than it seems like anyone in state government. Am I correct? Nebraska Game and Parks was the first state division to have a website, correct? Yes. Why did you embrace technology the way that you did? Well, because it gave us a new platform to communicate. And I think the successes of government are based largely on communication. And I know you, whatever topic you want to talk about, well, what are they doing here? What, what's the, there's the orange trucks here. What are they doing? Or what, why are they doing it? And so I always we would rely on my journalism training to tell people, what are we doing with their, when they buy a hunting permit, what are we doing with that money? What are, where are we spending it? How are we spending it? So it's, it's just like writing a news story, who, how, what, where, and when. And you have to communicate that. Well, I, I could see this, and I had a lot of advice on this. From I had some internal folks that uh, we didn't have such thing as IT department, but they were on their own all into following this field and, and helping build it, actually. Um, and so I could see that platform as being a wonderful uh, communication. Then after we were in it a couple of years, we, we had uh, people involved in it, and we thought about selling permits on the Internet because people would come in to, say, hunt in Nebraska, and they'd get here Friday night, and the season opens the next morning. Well, what are they going to do? So if they drove up here from Texas or wherever, they have to wait till a place opens to sell them a hunting and fishing license. So I thought, well, if we could sell it to them online, they'd already have it, and they could go hunting that morning. And so we started down that road, and it's, it's a tedious one when you start vending, doing that. And really, I have to say, I don't know that we could have... We went fast. We were the first state to ever do it, and we went fast. And that was primarily because the chairman of our game commission at that time was Bill Grucock. And he was an executive with Kiwit Company. He knew what it was to do fast. You bid, build, get it done. Yep. So he, he, he knew what we were talking about. He could talk the language. And so what happened then was you got all the, the pitfalls of state government to move to, to that. And uh, uh, Governor Heineman, I met with Governor Heineman and talked to him about it. And he said, Let's do it, just like that. And then at that point, well, I excuse me, I, I, I'm, I, I'm still correct calling him Governor Heinemann, but at that point, he was state treasurer. Okay. And they're the ones who handle the financials. And so he, he said, let's do it. And so we, we were the first one to start selling. And then we were going to have a trial season and sell muzzleloading permits, because there's not a heck, heck of a lot of those compared to deer permits and et cetera. So uh, we, we went down that road, and we told it, asked the chairman that we could just do a, a trial muzzleloading season, sell permits online. He said, no. Why would you just do muzzleloaders? Do them all. If you're going to do it, do them all. So that's what we did. And we had terrific help from the state's uh, IT departments. And th there was a lot of people. It, it was a lot of work to 
start vending things and do it where everybody's safe and everybody has access to it, and et cetera. But it's, it's just been a wonderful platform for us to use, a wonderful tool to make sure that we can get the products out to the people. And we use it in education. We use it in everything we do. Rex, while you were commissioner, you helped create over a dozen outdoor education programs. How did that become such a passion for you? Educating both the young and the old on the outdoors, on conservation, on how to hunt and fish the right way. Well, I think the first thing is I had, I had to rely on my own experiences. And, and um, that's about, to, to a large extent, in my judgment, that's about all anybody has to rely on. If you didn't if you just woke up tomorrow and were 65 years old and didn't have any background, you wouldn't have much to look forward to. <laughs> What's that? Oh, that's a car. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm exaggerating there. But I, I've always felt when my mom was a teacher and, and she never quit teaching, my dad was a farmer and he never quit farming, I used to think, you know, all my friends, they worked here and then they moved to there and moved and I said, what? I, I must, I've just had the same job for all these years. But then I got to thinking about it. My mom always had the same job, and my dad always had the same job. So I don't, I don't even envy anybody that had to move. And I had lots of opportunities to move, but there was never even as close to getting a magnet big enough to do that to me. We'll be right back to Nebraska Gems after this. For all of your concrete needs, call Kramer Concrete at 402-560-0670. Do you have a cracked driveway or sidewalk? Are you in need of an egress window or an awesome-looking new patio with stamped concrete? If so, call Tim Kramer at 402-560-0670 to get a free estimate. With over 20 years of experience, the Kramer Concrete staff specializes in concrete replacement, egress windows, and concrete patio design. Kramer Concrete is the low-cost solution to all of your concrete problems. Call Tim today at 402-560-0670. Every Sunday evening from 5 to 7 on 93.7 The Ticket and theticketfm.com. Tune in for the Husker Rewind with myself, Mike Melby, and my co-host, Tom Stevens. We'll have all of the latest on the the Huskers, plus other happenings going on in the sports world. That's the Husker Rewind. Sunday evenings from 5 to 7 on 93.7 The Ticket. Thank you for listening to another edition of Nebraska Gems. We hope you're enjoying the episode. Don't forget to check out our latest feature, Quick Gems, where our guests share a few shorter stories that we think you'll find entertaining. You can find those and all of our episodes at NebraskaGems.com. And now back to this episode of Nebraska Gems. Conservation and protection of native species is a very important part of what the Game and Parks Commission does. Now, it was announced back in August that the commission was going to perform a chemical renovation to Wagon Train Lake down by Hickman to eradicate three species, the invasive common carp, the white perch, plus the gizzard shad. When they do this, it eliminates all guild-breathing creatures, so all other species of fish will perish as well. I can imagine that every time that the commission does this, there's probably a couple who do not understand why and complain about it. For those that maybe don't understand why you need to do this, why is it so important? Well, it's important to do it because the, the, the water resource... It can only has so much capacity for biomass, and I'm not a biologist, fisheries biologist, so I won't. Ever, I don't think I'll pretend to be one now. 
But I do know from talking to the specialists that the, the, when you have the invasive species, they are the stronger species. And they're, therefore, um, they're not sought-after species. If, now, if you, when you take lakes like big, big lakes, there's enough room for everybody there because the, the, the other species, game fish, which we would probably name them, label them, uh, are much more aggressive and, and they find habitats that match their, their only their criteria. So that, that works a little better. But I think the most important thing is to always let the public know what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. And I would have to say in, in all the renovations I was involved in, I, I, I know not recall any person uh, contacting me with a complaint about it. Most, well, that's good to hear. Most people are tickled to death about it because that'll open up a new fisheries forum. Now, doing something like this has already been done at a local lake. Conestoga Lake, four or five years ago, was drained after they did a chemical renovation. And when they did, one of the other issues that was very prevalent at Conestoga was way too much sediment being in the, the lake, so it wasn't as deep as it needed to be. The fish didn't have a good habitat to live in. They completely revamp the entire lake. There's fish highways, which I had never heard of before. There's sediment ponds upstream to help catch sediment to make sure that the lake doesn't fill in again anytime in the, the at least near future. It was such a massive undertaking and then successful project because there are very large keepers being pulled out of Conestoga Lake today. It's my favorite lake to go to around the Lincoln area to go kayak in. It is truly one of the best lakes around Lincoln now because of all the work that they did. And I think Wagon Train is going to benefit the exact same way. Well, and that's everything you just said is true, and that's, that's why I think fishermen like it. Um, I, I do want to, Mike, if I can, I'd like to go back just a second here. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't think I got covered when you asked the question about the youth and my okay. interest in those programs. And I, I guess one of my... And 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 result is that youth are our greatest treasure. They're our greatest natural resource. If they are, and they're not a natural resource, <laughs> but they're our greatest resource in our in our state. And so, we want them to be uh, as they grow up through their lives. They're going to go to voting booths. They're going to go to high school. They're going to do all these things, and they need some education on part. Because high schools and they're, they're too busy to get too much into in the biology of uh, the natural history, so we can provide that. And when the legislature passed a bill that required all students, all kids that are going to hunt, to have a hunter safety class, well, there were there were about five thousand kids in the, all the school system in Nebraska at that time in that age group. So how are we going to educate 5,000 people? We're not going to get anybody else to do So we, we started out recruiting volunteers. And we had enormous success, enormous success. Then we sent the volunteers to school. They learned how to teach hunter safety. And then, of course, they held classes and graduated people, and they got their cards and could get the hunting license. But that then happened also for boating education. And then we, we boiled that over to uh, 
just outdoor. Uh, we had outdoor women programs. We had uh, all, all everybody programs, and it just it just caught fire and it was very very popular. Still is with all the kids. What year was it that the hunter safety program first got started? Was it in the early eighties? It was in the eighties. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, Dick Turpin was our first. Well, he wasn't our first one, but he was. He came on as our hunter safety coordinator. Okay. And that that's a name you might know. Um, <laughs> I it's been uh, kind of a tough year. We've we've lost Dick. Yeah. And uh, that was a huge loss. Well, I wanted to mention also, and I said we lost Dick Turpin this year. We also, as you know, lost Roger Welch. Yep. And probably two of the greatest storytellers in the States ever produced. Yep. <laughs> They're both very skilled at it. But anyway. You're pretty good at it yourself. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind of you. You know, I wouldn't mind hearing a great story right now if you had one. Um, did you ever have a relatively famous person, movie star, rock star, uh, author, or somebody that's pretty well off that, that asked you know, hey, can you hook me up with, with like the perfect place to hunt where I know I'm going to, you know, get a deer or I'm going to get some grouse or I'm going to, you know, make sure I get pheasant, et cetera? Well, I, I don't know about famous or... You don't, you don't have, have to drop names, names but you can tell well, the story. Uh, I really didn't have that. I mean, the thing about it is <laughs> a lot of people are famous and have a lot of money, don't need a place to hunt. <laughs> they just buy it. True. I mean, that's... Uh, that's a story about, uh, oh, I'm not going to tell you that's too long a story, but uh, the only, well, I'd say one of the most famous people in Nebraska, the Tom Osborne, and I became pretty good friends and acquainted as acquaintances over the years, and he called me one day and wanted to know if I could find a place for his, one of a couple of his players to play to hunt grouse. I said, well, I'm sure we can, so I he gave me a guy to contact and take care of it. And um, so I, I called the game warden up in that district, and he had a really good friend. It was a rancher and, and a good friend of everybody. But uh, So they set up this grouse hunt for the morning after a football game, home football game. And so I'm not going to say the name of the players, <laughs> but they drove out there. About three or four of them, and went to took the directions and went to this ranch house. And when they got there, the whole yard was full of trucks and pickups and cars. <laughs> what? They they got scared. They thought it was a commercial hunting outfit. But all oh, people come on running out and said hello to and greeted. Anyway, they went in the house and they had this beautiful buffet set up. I mean, just <laughs> was unbelievable. And they, all the farmers and ranchers were around and meet them. And so they got all done with that. They thought, we, I could just know what's going through their mind. We came out here to hunt. Yeah. So then they loaded them up and took them out to a play, place and said, this is good, pretty good grouse hunting in there. And just go through there and slow. And went. and so they did. And they got grouse. And, and they said at the end it was probably the most wonderful experience they've ever had hunting. And, and a little... Nervous, nervous when they show up, up yeah. thinking what, what the heck, heck is going yeah. on, and ultimately, uh, at the end of the day, it turned out to be a lot of fun. But you know, there there have been times when when people would say, you know, do you know any guides or anything? Well, I'd I, I'd say you can go to this website and find them. 
I'd refer people on, but uh, generally speaking, uh, this 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 particular hunting event was more of a public event, and there was nothing private about it. That's for sure. Yeah, and no secrets about it because that. Uh, and I, you know, you, you look back. Wh- who was Tom going to ask? Is he going to call it water resources director? I mean, I was a resource, and I liked being a resource. And if I could help people find a place to hunt, or if I could help people f- figure out when the fishing's good for this fish or that, I'd help them. Were you more passionate about hunting or fishing your whole life? Oh, hunting, I guess, but I, I love to fish, too. It's just I, I had more opportunity for hunting growing up on the farm there. Although, my dad was an avid fisherman. He fished in the river all the time. I, I grew up on catfish and pheasants. Uh, we had lots of pheasants, and he caught lots of catfish out of the river. So we, uh, and we, we'd go up to Harlan about once, two, two or three times during the summer and fish. But... Uh, I just I loved I loved hunting bob white quail and and the uh, rooster pheasant. There's no no trickier game bird in the world as far as I'm concerned. So you mentioned Harlan County. I happen to know a little bit about it. You would. My yes. parents live out there. How did the law get changed for the public to be able to catch shad with a throw net? Do you remember how that happened? I do. Would I, you please share that story? Well, um, there was a gentleman in Red Cloud, Nebraska, named Ed Lambert. And he would write me a huge letter every year and say, um, I need to figure out how we can do this because there's no reason not to. So I would ask the, the department's uh, law enforcement division chief about this. And he said, oh, the problem is it just welcomes uh, ca- casting for walleye and casting for this and casting for that. It just welcomes a new fishery that isn't welcome here. And I said, well, I don't know. It seems like shad, gizzard shad and the net that they use and uh, wouldn't be that uh, dangerous, but I take your word for it. So that summer I went out to uh, Harlan County and I went with some fe- people that that knew how to do it, I'm guessing they did do it. They didn't tell me that. So they took me out and they showed me the essentials of doing it. Now see, you try it. And I mean, it, that isn't just falling off a tree. It's a real skill to do that. <laughs> now I don't know whether you can catch a big walleye in there or not, <laughs> but I, I couldn't really see that. So then I, we, 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 we started really examining it then with, with fishermen and people who wanted to use them. And, like I said, probably they were. Uh, you know, <laughs> they have ways of doing things like that that they want to do. But anyway, we then uh, approached it from a from a statewide angle where people got all, we went out. First thing we want to do is always talk to as many people as we can, find out what they're thinking, and then we can move from there. And what we found out was there was, we couldn't find a person out there concerned about that law. So bingo, the people changed it. It was Ed Lambert who, <laughs> he just write, every year I get this big long letter for him. They're always different too and more creative. Persistence pays off. Yes. And honesty. He was honest about it. He said, 
I couldn't catch a big fish in one of these for spin all week. How many Master Angler Awards have you <laughs> have you caught in your life? Well, um, uh, quite a few, but my, my mainly uh, little fish like bluegill and and the the less was less bluegill and crappie and white bass. They're, you know, they don't have to be so big. I've caught a couple of stripers that were master anglers. But I took my wife fishing one day down in uh, southeast Nebraska at a friend's farm pond. And her first cast, she caught a master angler uh, crappie. And her second cast, she caught a master angler largemouth bass. And I told a friend, I said, I think I'm going home. I don't feel well. <laughs> <laughs> But we had so much fun. Fish, fishing is a family thing to me. It brings families together. You see a lot of solo fishermen, and they're generally really honing their skills. They're probably tournaments fishermen and things like that. And there's a they fill a, a good void. They fill a good uh, niche there for outdoor recreation for sure. But the thing of it is, the family fishing thing is is what we've always helped focus on although you know we we handled the tournaments too and we welcome the tournaments now in the news recently there was a story about a team of fishermen in a professional tournament that had filled their walleye that they had caught with weights lead weights and other fish fillets to increase the weight now the fish should have weighed four to five pounds they were weighing eight and a half to nine pounds they cut them open discovered it have you ever heard of or had an experience with a tournament here in Nebraska where somebody maybe did try to cheat, or has it always been on the up and up? Always been above board. I think some of the tournament fishermen are some of the best conservationists because they have a vested interest that's greater than the uh, average person, the average fisherman, in my judgment. What has life been like since retirement? I know you spent some time in Arizona. You're currently moving back to Nebraska. But how has retirement been for you? Wonderful. Except every morning I get up and I well for about the first week I'd get up and get get all dressed up and, and drive out to the office get there at seven o'clock and whoa nobody's in the parking lot <laughs> I thought wait a minute I don't work here anymore <laughs> so I had a lot of fun with doing that I and then, you know it's a, it's a hard separation I it took me really about a year to understand that I wasn't. I mean, you know, what retirement was. And I was at Fort Robinson State Park at a family reunion. And I got up one morning and I looked out there and how beautiful all this was. I'd never seen it before. I'd always been there working. I'd get there at night and leave in the morning. <laughs> so I, I just took a deep breath and said, you know, this place is wonderful. I'm going to drive around and look at it today. Okay, if you would, I would like to explore that a little bit. Since you've been retired and you've had time to drive around and look, is there a favorite park or a couple of favorite parks or places in Nebraska where you are just astounded by the beauty or that are truly your favorites these days? Well, I think Nebraska is uh, very special in that regard, that we have a multiple... Uh, diversity and, and habitats. Um, we have this 19 million acres sand hills, one of the most unique. What's well, the only? It's the largest sand hill area in the world with grass that's covered with vegetation and particularly grass. It's um, then you have the the whole 
Missouri River corridor, I think, is fascinating. And we have three uh, state, four state parks along the state park, along the Missouri River. So that attests to the popularity of the river, the riverine habitats. And um, so I, I find myself, uh, when I was working, uh, I get asked that question frequently, particularly if I was in Ponca, they would say, what's your favorite state park? Oh, let me think. <laughs> so, but it's, it's true. I, Indian Cave State Park is one of the most beautiful state parks, particularly in the fall. And Fort Robinson is, to me, is, is just you just can't get any more special than that because it combines, you know, it's, it's, it's so multifunctional in interest levels. You got the history of the fort. You have the history of the Great Plains. You just have, and then you have the the days where you go, still go up and ride in a stagecoach and ride the horseback riding is the most popular thing we do in any state park. And now, are you an avid horseback rider, or were you ever? I oh yes, yes, I love to ride. In fact, is one of my favorite things to do is I'd take a weekend when we the, see the horses were when they work all summer. Then in the fall, they put them out to pasture, and of course they feed them in the winter time and what have you. Then they bring them back in, and they have to be re, retrained, and you have to ride them. Is what I'm getting at. And I used to love to go out and do that because you, they'd put you on them, and they buck and buck and push and shove. It was fun. I really that was a fun weekend. I always looked forward to. Now, were you still doing that when you were a commissioner? Director. Yeah, our director. Yeah. Oh yes, mm-hmm. you bet. We need to re-break the horses. Call the boss. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's better at it than the rest. Well, of us. I'm not, but I just enjoyed it most, and I, I more, I didn't do it as much. I mean, it gets, it's, it gets unfun after a while. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, when you're city, when you're riding a desk uh, and uh, riding an office chair, <laughs> getting in those saddles for eight hours a day, is a whole different thing. So I, I was only good for a couple hours. A while ago, you mentioned that pheasants are the most difficult birds to hunt. So I'm curious, where is your favorite place to hunt pheasant in the state of Nebraska? Well, it's kind of, was it John Smith? And they asked him why he robbed the banks. He said that because that's where the money was or somebody like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think you try to figure out... Uh, where the best pheasant hunting is going to be. And that's, I think, what everybody does. <laughs> because, you know, and, and, and the commission always advertises, or always makes people aware that whether well, pheasant count in such and such county and in this county and that county. So, yeah, I, I'm just like everybody else on that. I don't, I'm not Ted Turner. I, did, I can't buy a ranch. To... <laughs> <laughs> so your favorite fishing hole is probably the same wherever you're kind of scouting out or do you yeah or wherever if yeah or for like last year i fished calamus and this this we went up for, for some white bass fishing it was really good we enjoyed that but i don't i don't do them as much fishing and hunting now as i did when you were younger did you ever go tanking you ever go no, float down I, a river no i did that as an adult but i mean you know, well i just so what was your favorite river to go tanking on well, I've only tanked on one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so I guess it'd be my favorite. We uh, we used to, uh, on, on the Republican River, we used to float the, r the river in inner tubes. 
Would you go all the way down to Napanee? It's a heck of a float. No, we would start at, uh, see, our farm was down by Red Cloud, which is quite a ways east of Napanee. Okay. And we would we would normally go. We'd start start the Innervale Bridge. Our mom, dad would take us up there, and that's like seven highway miles, probably ten river miles. We'd float down to the Red Cloud Bridge then. When you fish, what is your favorite? You said basically you're going after panfish a lot and, yeah. and white bass. Is that your favorite fish to try yeah. to catch? Yeah, I like the white fish. The the um, I don't know why you call them white fish, but the like. Compared to the salmon and the trout and all that, but they, um, I like um, bluegill. One of my that's my wife's favorite, so it pretty much has to be my favorite. So I was just going to ask you from a from a, a meal standpoint, um, bluegill is the is your favorite to eat. Yeah. From a, a hunting standpoint, do you have a favorite game that you like to eat the most? Duck. Really? Yeah. I already know the answer, but I got to ask anyway. Where's the best duck hunting in Nebraska, Rex? Wherever there's ducks. <laughs> I mean, it's just not going to work to go someplace where there aren't any ducks. <laughs> so, for uh, hunters that are planning your winter duck hunting trips, go where the ducks are. Yeah, the rainwater basin is always for people that live in this area. It's always solid. I mean, yep. there are lots of public places to hunt ducks. Rex, one thing that we try to do our best is research and make sure that we ask questions that are going to get the best stories out of whoever our guest is. And I, I don't think I could ever find enough questions to ask you because you have got to have more stories than just about anybody, especially about hunting and fishing and conservation in the state of Nebraska. And I... I I want to ask, what did I miss? There's got to be a story, uh, especially a touching story, a super funny story, but something that kind of is is really prevalent in your mind that that made an impact or is just super memorable to you. Is is there a story that you want to share that maybe I didn't ask a question that led you to? Well, I think there was one story. Um, I I. Uh... A friend of mine purchased a German short hair, and um, after he got it, he found out that you can't just put a short hair on a leash and walk around the block with him. And I, I wasn't familiar with short hairs. I had Springer Spaniels when my dad had Springer Spaniels, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't figure out about this dog because he. So I started reading up about it. And they're pretty quirky dogs. But anyway, they're great hunters. Long story short was he, he couldn't keep it. So he wanted to know if I wanted it. And we had just lost our dog about a year earlier. And um, I heard I heard my wife talking about maybe a little tiny dog or a Jack Russell Terrier or something. Oh, man. I'm like, no, I like big dogs. Well, anyway, my friend calls me and says, do you want this dog? He said, I can't keep it. Well, I said yes. And when I first got it, my wife didn't like it at all. But then after about a week, she said, now, you take him hunting. You make sure he doesn't get in any close to any barbed wire. She <laughs> it, it transferred, ownership transferred right there that day. <laughs> yep. But anyway, <clears throat> a friend of, um, uh, well, actually one of my commissioners in McCook, Nebraska, Dan Wallen, had invited me out to pheasant hunt with his brother and a couple of other people. 
So we went pheasant hunting, and one of the people who were hunting with us was a man from Omaha who had a grandson that lived there in uh, McCook. So he was out, and he had just bought him a new gun and took him trap shooting and wanted him to shoot these pheasants. So <clears throat> we while we're walking down the start walking down the field, and the dog, uh, my dog, ran out and went on point. I mean, he was already out, but he went on point. So the gentleman and his grandson are down the field from a little way. I said, well, why don't you come up here and we'll see if we can get a shot for your grandson. So he does, <clears throat> brings him up, and I, tell, I walk out to the bird, and I said, now you, you stand right here, and then when you say, when I say, you step in front of the dog and walk forward and look on the ground, see? And that bird will flush up. You put that gun up, and you don't be in a hurry. Put it solid, aim it down, and shoot. So he said, he was nervous, of course, never shot a bird before. And so he did exactly what I said. He went out, the bird flushed, he put the gun up, the solid, boom, just folded it. Becker then, that was the name of my dog, he ran out, grabbed that dog, and brought it right back to the young man. The, the, grabbed the dog. The pheasant grabbed the dog and ran away. But, well, I get emotional when I tell that story. It's, it is just a memory I'll never, ever forget. But, yeah, he ran out and grabbed the bird and brought it back and handed it to my the little friend, the little grandson. And the grandpa was just streaming tears. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is... Well, how it, does it get any better than this? I don't know how. No. So that's what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, and for you know him to be able to share that moment with his grandson had to be yeah. such an amazing feeling for you to be able to be there. Yeah, he he was really happy about it. I'm glad I asked if I missed anything because that was one hell of a story. We want to wrap it up with some some quick rapid fire questions, quick answers. Unless it's a great story, then give us a long answer. Do you think that there is a world record out there that you would have a shot at beating? Well, I have to tell you, I'm tied for one. Really? Well, let's hear this. Well, I was Joel Klammer. Um, it's a long story. It was not a long story, but Ed Schrock, Senator Schrock, was chairman of the Natural Resources Committee, and, he, and we got to be good friends. And so one year he invited me to go fishing. He takes take an annual fishing trip with a several people, several friends, and they do my annual fishing trip to Canada or Alaska or somewhere like that. So they were going up into uh, Manitoba, I believe it was, and so he invited me to go, and I said, yes, I can do that. That'd be fun. Well, anyway, at that there, I went through a kind of a crazy time. I, I got into this, well, I don't think it's crazy. That's not a good term. It's an unusual it's not common. <laughs> Peculiar. Peculiar is to use light, light tackle and light, light. Uh, not instead of using, I always people say, you don't use a broomstick st to catch bass and hook them and just reel them in on top of the water. You, I'd use these little uh, ultralights with four, four pound test line. And so when you hook one, you, you've got a, a half hour ahead of you or more, and um, to keep them on. 
But I was in Canada on that trip with Ed, and I wanted to catch a big fish on that four-pound test line. So I fished for um, one afternoon, because it's not very productive. I fished for these lake trouts. They were, in the summertime, they, they're down deep, and in the fall, they come up. If you want to catch the lake trout, that's generally at least where we were fishing. That's what they told us. So what happened was I, I asked this friend of mine that I was fishing with, I said, would you mind just spending a couple hours not doing too much except just kind of enjoying the outdoors and watching me be a crazy? And, oh, no, I'll do it. Let's go. So anyway, I, I put uh, uh, we caught a grayling, I believe it was, and used it for bait. And I put it on this. I had a, a regular uh, reel with, I think, 20-pound test line on it. Then I had about 60 feet of leader that was four pound. And so I put that on there and threw it over the board, sat there for a while. Pretty soon it started to move. And then started to move again and again. Well, pretty soon it got tight and then started pulling. So I set the hook. Now I'm thinking that was really dumb, Rex, <laughs> because... <laughs> This is not going to work out. It's you're going to spend a lot of time, and then, oh boy, well it started swimming away then, so I just let it go and let it go and kept the line tight, kept the line tight, and when I saw that sixty feet go by, well it was it, that would have been by forever, but it, that was my I had I had a little stopper on there so I could tell. Well, in any, anyway, long story short was after a while, it quit swimming. So I started reeling, and it started coming toward me. Well, then it came back to me, and it, and it decided it wanted to swim some more. So I let it swim. Well, eventually, it just came right to the top. I think he was just bored with the whole thing. <laughs> Let's get this over <laughs> with. So we, we just took the hook out and took a couple of just pictures of his back. And... Um, then I was at, was telling Joel Clomer, one of our fisheries biologists up in Bassett, this story. He said, "Well, how long was it?" And I said, "Well, we did measure it from you know, well, it was still in the water." And I can't remember the deal, but he said that would be on a chart he had it would be 34 pounds. So I was just telling him that story. Well, I don't even know how we got started on it, but anyway, about six eight months later, he calls me up and said, "Rex." I'm looking in the world records of light line fish catching, and it's uh, you tied the 34 pounds, you or whatever you tied the world record. <laughs> so I share a world record. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, that had to be a heck of a. How long did it take you to finally get the fish to give up and come say hi? Oh, you know, it wasn't that long. It seemed like a long time because you just. I just the whole time I was thinking, any minute that he wants to swim away, he's going to do that. And I, you know, as soon as I run out of line, it's just that would be the old saying: the end of the line, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we we got him back and and looked at him and measured him, and that was it. It was just a wonderful experience, all in all. But I will tell you that uh, I gave up that. Light line fishing right after that. <laughs> I never <laughs> fished with it since. <laughs> Understandable. 
uh, sweet or salty? Salty. Okay. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning. Do you have a favorite phrase? Hmm. I can't think of one. I, okay. I, I like to use a variety of phrases, but <laughs> I try to. I, I give my staff, our staff at the game commission, they'd say, I'd say something like, boy, they just goes together like ham and sugar or something. I'd just take a common thing and just totally mess it up. And I'm sure they'd, gosh, I wonder why he doesn't know what that was really about. <laughs> Where's your favorite vacation spot outside of the state of Nebraska? Any coast where there's an ocean. I wholeheartedly agree. Rex, thank you so much for joining me here on this episode of Nebraska Gems. It has been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. And good luck with your podcast efforts. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Nebraska Gems.